Today we turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. We welcome those visiting among us. We are going through the gospel of Matthew together. Here we are today at the start of the final week of Jesus' life. So the context of this is just before this passage, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, kids, on that triumphal Sunday, often called Palm Sunday. We pick up now, hearing God's word in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Imagine the scene on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. People waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna from Psalm 118, which means save us now. The crowds were wild. Jesus is coming on a donkey, however, not a powerful horse or a chariot, not in the way that they would have expected. And yet Jesus did come to save to bring a different sort of salvation, not political deliverance, but salvation from sin and judgment, the wrath and curse of God, and death and Satan himself. After Jesus entered into the city, he probably went to one of the homes of one of his friends, to Bethany, perhaps Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He spent the night there. The order of this matters because as Mark brings out, It is on the morning of Monday, before he goes to the temple, which we saw last week, that he curses the fig tree. Does that help a little bit? Matthew's ordering this kind of topically. But on the way to the temple, which he cleared out, he now, in a covenant curse that's similar to what he does in the temple, curses a fig tree and then ties that in with faith. This is a bizarre passage in some ways. And yet it speaks to us about God's covenant dealings with his people. In Genesis, in Revelation, and throughout the Bible, our God is a covenant God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Curses come upon, in particular, the hypocrite, on the wicked. But the blessings of God's grace as a father who loves his children, has adopted us in Christ, come upon his people. And so we look at this theme of cursing and blessing in the lens of a covenant, which is God's gracious condescension to communicate in particular as his people, his grace to us 
in Christ, the covenant keeper. First, let's look at this theme of the fruitless cursing that we see in the fig tree. It's probably 6 a.m. on Monday, the day after the triumphal entry. Jesus awakes, and he's hungry. Now, children, we don't want to skip over that too fast. Jesus is truly God and truly man. So when you wake up in the morning, you're hungry, so is he. He wanted to get some breakfast. He's tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. He knows our weakness, our frailty. So he goes to look for breakfast, perhaps, or on the way he sees a tree that he would think might give him some breakfast. What kind of tree is it? A fig tree. Now, we don't have those like out here, but in Jerusalem, they're very plentiful. There would be different seasons where figs would actually be on the tree. In the early spring, there would be some holdovers from the winter, and these very small plum-like or large cherry-like fruit would be growing. It's not a great tasting fruit at this time of the year, but it would be there in some way to indicate that the tree is healthy, especially if the leaves are full. And that's what Jesus sees here, a tree with leaves, but something's missing, something that you would not expect to be missing. The tree is barren, fruitless, Jesus is still hungry. There's no breakfast there. And he does something that really should surprise us. It's the only miracle in the Bible like this. He curses the fig tree. The language is very strong. Never again will you bear any fruit. But not only does he say it, but it happens. Not over time as a tree might slowly die out, but instantaneously, a miracle. Right then and there, the tree withers at once. It's startling. It's something only God can do. In the space of a few verses, we see that Jesus is truly man, he's hungry, and he's truly God. He causes a tree to wither. When he created that wine from the water, that was instantaneous. All of the miracles Jesus does shows that he is God, that he has a power that can come only from God, and that he does something to show his his majestic glory and, and, and divinity. And yet, as you look at this, why would he curse a tree? In the Old Testament, there are Miracles of judgment, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the ten plagues on Egypt. But Jesus' miracles bring healing, grace, relief for those who are suffering, afflicted, sick, and sorrowful. This seems so out of character, doesn't it, to Jesus? He curses a tree that he made, he's God. Why should he destroy the tree? Have you wondered that? Is he blasting the tree as we might kick the proverbial dog, as someone says? Is he just so irritated with the unbelief of Israel that he's just had it? Is he hangry? We get hangry. We're hungry and we're angry and it's all at once. Is he crabby? 
Breakfast didn't come? Kind of irritated, exasperated? The answer to all those questions is no. None of the above. Why then does he curse the fig tree? He's using the fig tree as a living parable. He curses the tree as a prophetic parable of judgment to get the attention of the disciples. It's a living parable about what is about to happen in the temple, which we saw just last week. It's about a covenant curse coming upon those who are unbelieving in Israel. The language of the fig tree goes back to the Old Testament. That's why this seems so odd to us. What what does a fig tree have to do with, well, it's everywhere in the Old Testament, in fact. The language of figs and fruit and vineyards. Children, do you remember Isaiah 5? Israel was a vineyard to the Lord to produce fruit and good grapes for wine. Deuteronomy 8, the promised land of Israel is described, yes, milk and honey, wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees and honey. In the Old Testament, a picture of peace and blessing and prosperity is when everyone has their own vine and they sit under their own fig tree. Israel, however, didn't produce good grapes. They were stinking grapes, sour grapes, the kind of grapes that you spit out and you want nothing to do with. There's no fruit there. In Jeremiah, Hosea, and Isaiah, God speaks of Israel as a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. Hosea says, Like the first fruit of the fig tree, I saw your fathers in the season, God says, Hosea 9. But then Israel turns to idolatry and wickedness, and God says, they will bear no fruit. Micah 7, the Lord says, this is God speaking, what misery is mine. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. Now, God's not hungry, literally, for those figs, although Jesus is hungry here as truly man and truly God. But God is seeking spiritual fruit, Micah 7. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. When Jesus is cursing the fig tree, he's acting like the prophets of old. He's sitting here using the tree as a symbol of the spiritual condition of unbelieving Israel. The leaves are there. It looks alive. It looks vibrant. Think of the temple. The priests are there. The sacrifices are there. The Sanhedrin are there. People are flocking to the temple by the thousands, perhaps two million people during this Passover season. The lambs are being slaughtered. Blood is all over the place. It's busy. It's fervent. It's visible. It's impressive. And it's outward. Jesus is foretelling what will happen to Jerusalem and the temple as he curses the fig tree. 
He will clear the temple because they had made what was to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. It was to be for all the nations, and Israel had turned it into a bazaar, a marketplace, the state fair on steroids with all sorts of ways to make money and to make themselves look great. There's no grace and faith, no love, no humility, no spiritual fruit, no trust in God, no repentance. The temple will be swiftly judged. Titus and the Romans will come in 70 AD and destroy it. The hypocrisy of Israel is under inspection. Jesus is confronting, condemning, and cursing. Isaiah 6, which we read in the call to worship, goes on and says, you have this outward kind of honoring me with your lips sort of approach to worship, God says, but your heart is far from me. In vain you're worshiping me. You're teaching the commandments of men and they're making them the commandments of God. That's legalism in some ways, isn't it? Adding to God's law by putting man's law on top of it, taking away from God's law, the law of love for God and neighbor. No heart for God. It's a warning for us, loved ones. It's easy to sit back and realize we're not in the temple and we're not the fig tree. And yeah, But there are applications to us because the danger of hypocrisy is in all of our hearts. The outward show playing a game, pretending, caring more about what people think of us than the honor and the glory of God, than the worship of God, thinking about our reputation first, not the gospel of Christ. And the longer any of us, including pastors or elders or church leaders, play at this game, the less likely there will be real repentance. There becomes a hardening. Esau himself was hardened beyond the point of repentance. Religious formalism. I grew up going to church. I was baptized. I took the membership class. I take the Lord's Supper. I'm a church officer. I'm a church leader. And putting our hope there rather than in Jesus, that's the danger for all of us. Trusting the system, trusting ourselves, trusting what people think of us rather than trusting the blood-bought, spirit-wrought righteousness of Christ. Hypocrisy is fruitlessness. No trust, no rest in Jesus. And this parable is the one parable that teaches that Jesus has come and all judgment has been committed to him. God is patient. We see that secondly. We go from the curse of the fruitlessness and the judgment that comes on unbelieving Israel to the patience and kindness of God that leads to repentance. The fruitful encouragement Jesus gives to his disciples. The disciples see this and they marvel. Do you notice that? The fig tree withered all at once. If you saw it, children, you would marvel as well. But they don't ask why Jesus cursed the tree. Notice that? What do they ask? How did he do it? 
They want to know, okay, tell us a little bit of the inside scoop here, Jesus. How does this miracle happen? We might want to do it too. Give us the, the sauce, the ingredients, the way to make this kind of take place. It's a teachable moment. Jesus does not answer their question. Do you notice that? He doesn't explain to them the inner workings of a miracle. He's God. But he talks to them about faith. The opposite of what was going on in Israel at that time, which is no faith, which is externalism. Jesus says, let's talk about true faith and prayer and fruitfulness. And he does so with one of the more, I think, convoluted and misapplied verses in all the Bible. Do you see that? You've got a mountain, you've got a sea, you've got faith, and you can do it all. Have you heard people say that? Name it and claim it. If you have enough faith, you'll get what you want. If you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're poor, it's because you haven't claimed the promises of God for you. God wants you to be rich and healthy. Just try harder, have more faith, and you'll get it. Have you heard that? It's a lie. It's satanic, and it's not at all the gospel of Jesus. So what's he mean? Mountains and sea. As Jesus is standing here on the Mount of Olives, you can see the temple mount here, and if it's a clear day, you can see 25 miles down to the Dead Sea, all the way down there. Zechariah 14 speaks of the Mount of Olives splitting in two. What most likely is happening here is Jesus is metaphorically speaking of the prophecy of Zechariah. The picture is of the temple itself being tossed 25 miles and 4,000 feet down the valley into that Dead Sea. And you're thinking that is a visual picture of the power of God. That's part of it. I think it's mainly, as DeYoung says, a messianic prophecy. What did the prophets say? In the days that the Messiah will come, the rough places will be made a plain, Isaiah 40. The valleys will be brought low, the mountains will be leveled out. Not literally that everything will become like Iowa, but that all the impediments to the coming of Jesus will be removed. In particular here, the context is the temple. Christ is the temple. The temple is coming down. That's what drew the ire and hatred of the religious leaders more than anything. Jesus said, remember? I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days raise another not made with hands. That's what they pegged on him when they had him crucified. Remember that? The temple would come down. The old covenant theocratic nation of Israel and its temple are coming to an end. Christ is there to fulfill them. Christ is God in the flesh. So what makes you the people of God? Not that you go to worship at some temple, but that you worship Jesus. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you, Christian. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ, united to him. The fruitless tree points to the futility of temple worship. 
Jesus says faith moves this mountain. See that? He doesn't say any mountain. He doesn't say, well, if you have enough faith, you can make Pike's Peak disappear and drop into the Grand Canyon. This mountain. He's talking about the Temple Mount. He's talking about how he has come to fulfill it all. And he's reminding us that faith itself is rooted in him. What is true faith? We looked at it in the Heidelberg Catechism today because I think it's so important to be reminded of this. Faith is knowledge, assent, and trust in the person and the work of Christ. Do you see in your text? If you have faith, verse 21. If you have faith, verse 22. Faith does not depend on its strength, but on its object. It's not small faith that condemns, but no faith. Our faith rests and receives and relies upon and trusts in another, Jesus. It looks away from ourselves. The world says, have faith in yourself, right? You can do it. If you look within, you can achieve your potential, you can blast those demons out of your life, and you can be all you can be. The Bible says faith is forsaking self and trusting in another. I am a sinner, and I have no righteousness in myself. I need a Savior. Christ is that Savior that the Father has sent for me. Christ has achieved a perfect righteousness through his life. Christ has borne the curse of my sin in my place through his death. Christ has risen from the dead on the third day for my justification. As I am united to Christ by faith, by the power of the Spirit, when Christ died on the cross, I died to sin. When he rose from the dead, I rose in him. My life is hidden with Christ in God. God sees you, Christian, as one who is chosen and loved, forgiven and righteous in his Son. If you trust in him by grace alone, through faith alone, he doesn't see you in all of your sins and messing ups this week. He doesn't see you in your afflictions and your sorrows. He sees you and loves you as much as he loves and delights in his own son. Faith is not about trusting itself, but about the object who is Jesus. Romans 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness of Jesus, by which we stand now bold before God. God nourishes faith. He builds up our weak faith by pointing us to Jesus, turning us away from ourselves to see how great God is, how loving God is, how self-giving and good, and overflowing in grace God is. What is the chief expression of faith? It's prayer. You see how Jesus connects faith and prayer here? Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Again, not name it, claim it, but along with the rest of the Bible saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. In prayer, in faith, we humbly submit to Christ and his will. Faith is lifting up our desires to God, to the one who's able to do far more abundantly all than all that we ask or think. It's the power of God in Christ, not the power of faith. 
It's God who comes to give glory to himself in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, Ephesians 3. And so when you come in prayer, what does Jesus say? Don't doubt. That's why we prayed or read James 1 in the reading of the law today. We all struggle with doubt. We all, by nature, are that tossed to and fro man that James warns against, double-minded. We need the grace of God to come not doubting, not like the wave of the sea, but bold, confident in Jesus. God, you can do all things. You can give to us the gifts that you've promised to give. Help me not to doubt. With you, all things are possible, O God. Heal the sick. Provide a job for my friend who's right now really struggling. Protect me from suffering and evil. Make my work prosper. Bring humility and repentance in my marriage. Help our kids to walk with the Lord, to love the Lord, to delight in the Lord. Deepen my faith. Teach me to love an in-law, a friend, a family member that I generally just don't like. Sanctify me to be like Christ. Reveal yourself and your glory to us as a church. Be present with us as we worship by your spirit. May the worship of your people be pleasing in your sight. Lord, calm my anxieties. I have a test coming up. My health is not well. Help me to trust you. Teach me patience in the midst of adversity. Give me your spirit that I would be thankful in times of prosperity. Help me to trust you. God, by nature, I turn inward. I'm disoriented. I'm darkened. Turn me out to Jesus to know that you are a God of abundant grace and goodness and I can trust you in times of joy and sorrow, sickness and health. I'm about to be married, oh God. I don't know what marriage is about. Help me and my soon-to-be spouse to love you and to, to love each other and to honor you. Heal me of this sickness if it's your will. Give me a zeal for the love of the Lord. Help me to hate evil. Help me to know in prayer that I depend on you, that I'm bankrupt, that all I have is in Christ, all I need is in Christ. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. When God hears those prayers for the sake of his son, as we come in faith, he produces fruit in his people. The opposite of the fruitlessness of Israel is fruitfulness in Jesus, Emmaus wrote. In our marriages, in our friendships, as a church family, here we are in this neighborhood. We pray, God, that we would shine forth with the light of Christ. That the gospel of Jesus would go forth from here. That we would not just be leafy. That we would not just be busy. That it would not just be outward, but it would be heartfelt change. Holy Spirit produced fruit because it's all found in Christ. All of the Old Testament longing for a vineyard, Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, like we sang about, for a shepherd is found in Jesus. Jesus is the fruitful one. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the one who comes to save us from our 
barren fruitlessness so that as John 15 says, we abide in Christ. We trust him. We rest in him. We get strength to fight sin by turning to him. Jesus, the one who is the perfect fruit of righteousness. Jesus loves you, his people, so much that he will prune you, that we would bear much fruit, that we would grow to be reflections of our Savior, that we would be more and more what we already are in Christ. It's not that we're trying to become something we're not, as we looked at last week. The scripture calls you, Christian, to become more and more what you already are in Jesus. Justified by grace through faith in Christ, we are righteous in Christ. The gospel way of holiness is now to be holy because in Christ you are set apart. By his spirit, you are becoming more like him. Galatians 5. The fruit of love and joy, peace and patience, goodness and gentleness and kindness and Self-control. Colossians 1, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Matthew 3, that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The kindness of God brings us to repentance. Emmaus wrote, what does this look like Practically, your loves will change, and so will mine. You will grow more and more to love God and love his people, to love his word and to love his worship. We will more and more hate what is evil, rejoicing with the truth, clinging to what is good. Our thoughts are captive to obey Christ. We begin to enjoy and love and glorify the Lord more. Godliness marks God's people more. We struggle with anxiety. God, give me joy and peace. Once we were characterized by outbursts of anger and wrath. We didn't get our way, we blew up. Our spouse knew it, our kids knew it. There's cruelty in our words. Now more and more we repent of that sin, we turn from it. The spirit produces self-control and contentment. Where before we were living in lust, now God produces love in our hearts more and more. Where before we would panic, now more and more we turn to the Lord. Heart change, not externalism, not just the foliage of good-looking leaves. Children obeying parents. Marriages that look like Christ and his love for the church. Parents not exasperating kids. Love for one another among us at Emmaus Road. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, Jesus says. Why? If you have love for one another. Where the church is a place of caring, burden-bearing, listening, a place of mercy and integrity and honesty, a place of hospitality, a place of tender-hearted forgiveness and not holding on to grudges. We are forgiven forgivers. All of this, beloved, is the opposite of the barren, cursed, wicked fruitlessness. And it's all only possible through the gospel of Christ. 
that as we grow as God's people to be more like Christ, beholding his glory, becoming more like him, the world would see. Unbelievers would hear the law and gospel, would be drawn to Christ by the Spirit, would become worshipers of the one true God who has a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so Emmaus Road, press on today. Don't lose heart. Look to, to Christ. Don't turn inward. Jesus says this to you and to me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's respond as we...